All right. Well, we got to say welcome here. Finally, welcome here. And uh, I'm going to ask you out of your Bibles, open to Romans 14. We are picking up week two of a two-part message. Pastor Jeff let you know that last weekend. It's a long paragraph. It uh, takes a chapter and a half, so we cut it in half. He took the first half. I'm taking the second half. And they really dovetail beautifully together into one message. And they could have been one very long message, uh, but there's enough material here to pull them into two. And last week, it's basically dealing with this issue. What if you have good Bible-believing Christians, equally who love the Lord, but disagree on secondary issues? Or disputable matters is how the text put it. So they both love Jesus, they both study the Bible, but they disagree on some secondary issue. How do we live with one another, accept one another? And so Jeff gave us three taglines last week, and these taglines, accept one another and worship in your way and stay in your lane. So those were the three from last weekend, and now we're going to build on top of that with the second half of the paragraph. And so I'm going to ask you to uh, stand together with me. So would you stand with me right now? And we're going to read. It's a long chunk of scripture, and so I'm I'm asking you to stand because otherwise you fall asleep during this long reading. But also I want you to stand just in honor of God's word and to be alert and, and listen along. So this is the second half of chapter 14 and on over into chapter 15, picking up where we left off last weekend. So therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, Do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Therefore, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. But it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if they eat. Because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. The reading of God's word. You may have a seat. So, we're picking up where we left off last week. And if last week's emphasis was simply this, give one another freedom, and don't break fellowship one another over these disputable matters, agree to disagree, if you will, the second half raises the yes, but question. 
the however question, the exception to that rule. Because what this text says is there actually is indeed a time where you will choose to limit your freedom. Even though you are free according to your conscience, you may choose to limit that freedom. So I'm just going to take a sidebar here for a moment because as I was studying, I remembered back to Bible school days, back before the earth's crust cooled when Carolyn and I were Bible school students. We had a prof who would sometimes give us an exercise coming into the classroom who would give us a text of scripture, maybe a paragraph or maybe just one single verse, and you needed to come to class with all the implications of that verse written out. And then together as a group, we'd try to come up with as many, and sometimes it was 20 or 30 implications. So things that the text did not say say directly, but things that the text implied or assumed or underneath. So very simple, the first book of the Bible, the very first verse, in the beginning, God. That assumes a lot of stuff. It assumes there was a beginning, and it also assumes there was God. It simply assumes it. So in the text that we're in today, Paul is making some assumptions that I think are important for us to take note of, some implications. What Paul implies in this text is that there are actually two groups that exist inside the church. There are two groups of Christians in this church. He assumes that there are those who are strong in their faith and those who are weak in their faith. He doesn't go on to debate that whether it's true or not. He just simply teaches it as though it's true, this implication. More likely than not, they're sitting side by side each week as we gather in our services. And it got me thinking about all the various terms that we use to describe the the journey of faith, so-called, where we stand in our walk with Christ. And we talk, we use terms like non-Christians, those who haven't come yet to faith yet, pre-Christians, seekers, skeptics. We talk a lot in our culture about nominal Christians, people who are Christian in name only, not practice, Uh, consumer Christians, those who bebop from church to church to church to church, always looking for some spiritual fix, baby Christians, growing Christians, mature and reproducing Christians. Uh, The church at Corinth was called carnal Christians or worldly Christians. Those who are young in the faith, those who are mature in the faith, those who right now in this moment are faith-filled and optimistic and standing strong, just flourishing in their faith, and then others who although their believers are anxious and fearful, maybe questioning, am I going to survive another week? I don't know. It just seems like God's not coming through. And more than likely, we're sitting side by side from week to week as we gather. And if we had the freedom and we had the time and we were honest enough and we actually felt safe enough, we could go around this entire room and every man, woman, and boy and girl could self-identify, you know what, one of those terms or I have my own that tells you where I am in my spiritual journey. Some would say, I'm not even on the spiritual journey yet. I don't know if I believe this stuff. I'm just checking it out. And others who've walked for decades and everything in between. And we know the people close to us, the the people that you know and love, that you're intimately related to, even without pressing the issue, you know inherently where they stand in their spiritual journey. You have friends and family members who you know are flourishing in their walk of faith. And you also have friends and family who may have said to you, not frankly, I'm struggling right now. I try to read my Bible, but it just falls flat for me. I just get nothing out of it. I I don't understand when these people talk about how much they get out of the Word, and it just makes no sense to me. Others who would say, you know what, it's like the Lord isn't coming through for me. I pray, and He doesn't answer my prayers. My marriage, my job, my kids, my health, my money, relationships, whatever it might be, I don't know if He's even listening. In fact, I'm wondering if I'm going to just tap out of this thing called spiritual life. And then I hear about these people who were so-called Christian leaders and have walked away from their faith, and I'm wondering, am I going to be one of those people who 
pack it in and walk away from the church. We've all known people like that, people we know and love and care for. And both scenarios are present in the church every time it gathers. I don't know who you are and where you would identify, but I'm sure you are in this room right now, those categories. And the question is, if those two groups exist side by side in every church, then how do we help one another? What do we do when we're in that state where we're struggling? We're like, right now, my spiritual life is in a desert, and I am not tracking with the Lord. And then what do you do when you're walking alongside someone? They might be your spouse. They might be one of your kids. They might be a person, a friend or neighbor that you just love deeply, and it agonizes you to see them struggling in their journey. What do you do to help them? And so this paragraph, this long paragraph, last week in this, begins in chapter 14, verse 1, and ends over in chapter 15, verse 7, and it starts and ends with the exact same phrase. It starts with this, chapter 14, verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak. And then chapter 15, verse 7 goes on to say, accept one another, the end, the bookend of it, then, just as Christ accepted you. It's an interesting word, accept one another. Some translations say receive one another or welcome one another. And the idea in the original word is this idea of pulling somebody in close. It's literally to extend the arm. It's like that good Mennonite side hug. You do, you know, come and pull in tight here. Welcome one another. Open your heart. Open your life. Open uh, your, 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 your life to one another. Come alongside. And, and particularly when you think about it, even those you disagree with, because that's the context of the text. Instead of pushing them away, you actually extend the arm and say, come closer. Come welcome into my life. Uh, it's interesting, as Jeff was speaking last week, and an old memory popped into my mind. I was a guest speaker in a church a number of years ago, and as we were making our way into the service and in the foyer and just meeting people, and an older woman came up, seemed like a nice lady about my mom's age, and she said, hey, you're the guest speaker? I'm like, yeah, I'm the guest speaker. I want to give you a book. Great. So I love books. My wife will tell you this. The house is filled with books. I always take a free book. So took it and tucked it under my arm and we went on with the church service and we went home and later that day or that week I, I pulled out that book and I began flipping through it. And it was one of those books, maybe you've seen them, that told us, told us about the dangers of rock and roll music and how the demons were using the drum beats. Those drum beats actually come from African drums, you know, like Ezra has brought them over here. And they're infiltrating our worship and how the screaming guitars were not honoring to God. And it was interesting to me because I thought, I wonder how that woman survived that service because we all went into the same service and it was much like ours with a full band with drums and guitar. And yet she sat there that Sunday under the devil's music. It was interesting because years later, I actually had a chance to visit with that woman in her home. And as soon as we sat down, she began off on a, a fairly angry rant about how the church was being destroyed by this. And she went on and on. I really quite honestly did not know what to say to her. And I felt like the Holy Spirit gave me the words when I finally just said to her, is it okay? Is it okay that I disagree with you? And she looked at me, and it was like a question in her mind, like nobody had ever approached the question that way, and she didn't know how to respond, because I didn't argue back. I didn't push back. I just says, is it okay if we disagree? And she got quiet, and she changed the subject, and we never came back to music again. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was like a verbal hug. Come on in close, and is it okay that we disagree? Starting at verse 13 of chapter 14, it's like second stanza of the same song. Same song, second verse. And the focus is specifically on people who 
consider themselves strong in the faith. And Paul gives two more principles to add to last week's three. Don't be a stumbling stone to others, and the stronger should serve the weaker. Don't be a stumbling stone to other people, and the stronger should serve the weaker. So much of this is a repetition, and if you're here and you're going, didn't you and Jeff collaborate on this? Like, you're saying the same thing Jeff said last weekend. Well, number one, he didn't say it very well, and there's a lot that needs to be corrected. <laughs> no, it's a long chunk of scripture, and we, we thought, you know what, let's take two weeks to drill into this. First, Paul says, don't put any speed bumps in the way of your brother or sister. I saw that phrase, speed bump, or stumbling stone, and it reminded me in the last four or five years, I became aware of something I didn't even know existed. Some of you know that our oldest daughter married a German guy, and that dirty dog dragged her off to Germany, and he is uh, keeping our grandchildren there against their wills. Uh, <laughs> they desperately want to live near Grandpa, but uh, they're in Berlin. They're church planning. We've had the chance to visit them a couple times. And so walking the cobblestone streets in Berlin, all the sidewalks made out of these little four-by-four blocks pounded in cobblestone. And periodically, and we've got a photo I took while we're over there, you'll come across this. They literally call them stumbling stones. It's Stolperstein in German. That's my entirety of my German language is right there. Stolperstein. Stumbling stones. Tripping stones. They're being placed into the cobblestone on purpose, and so you can read them and you can figure out what is happening here. These little four-by-four four brass plates, people are doing the research to find out where were the homes that all the people that were taken away by the Nazis and murdered. And if they can find where those addresses are and the names of when they were deported and when they died, they've placed so far, up to last year, 70,000 of these little stones that are in, and they're raised up just slightly above the other cobblestones, so they're literally tripping you can stumble upon them because they don't want to remember. And so you'll see a couple like this, or you'll see in one occasion, Carol and I took a photo of seven of them together. And as you read the names and the birth dates, you realized it was grandma, a married son and daughter, and their four grandchildren, all living in that same household, who were all deported on the same day. And then the last line in German says, and the day they were murdered at such and such concentration camp. They want us to remember. They want us to stumble over it. Now, in a different illustration, Paul says, don't put stumbling stones in people's way. Make a smooth path for them. So you have a brother or sister in the faith who's walking along and they're tripping over things. Make sure you try to clear the way for them. And he uses the phrase twice, verse 13 and verse 20. Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And verse 20, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. There's the same word. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and you're new to the church, and you're in 2019, which it is 2019, so you got that part right, you might read that and you might wonder, what is he talking about? Because what does my diet have to do anything with somebody else's spiritual journey? Like, who cares what I ate for breakfast, what we're going to have for lunch, and what I'm going to eat through the course this week, or what I ate in the past few days? How does that have any bearing on someone else's spiritual life? So we need to know the context. Now, you and I learn rules about food and eating and just polite manners and what it is to, you know, clean your plate and eat what's put in front of you. And I came from a family with seven kids. I had older brothers. If you didn't eat what was put in front of you, somebody else ate it. So you just eat what's put in front of you. How many of you were taught by mom and dad that when you're visiting someone else's home, you just eat what they put in front of you? Doesn't matter what it is. You, how many of you were taught that? The rest of you barbarians, when you go to someone's house, 
Whatever they put in front of you, say thank you that they put food in front of you and enjoy their food. Like you, it's part of being polite society. Uh, Jeff mentioned last week that we had been down in North Carolina with uh, one of our elders, Ditch uh, Dreger, was with us, and he was hassling us to go to Waffle House, and we didn't want to. And, but we thought, we're in the South. you got to eat some good Southern food. So we asked some people, like, recommend a restaurant where we're going to get good Southern food, like the, the, the good comfort food that you guys eat here. And they recommended this place called Dame's. It was a chicken and waffle house. We went there, and everything that was served came with some southern staples, grits, and spicy collard greens. So you're in the south, you should eat southern food. So Jeff, this guy who last week's making fun of uh, Ditch, like look at this picture of Jeff as we're trying to get him to enjoy <laughs> some good southern food. This is grits and spicy collard greens. I mean, it is a staple in the south, and he was so rude, like he didn't eat what was put in front of him. Ditch and I had to eat that whole portion all unto ourselves. Now, the point is this. It is, not, it is more than just simply polite society. In Paul's day, the eating and drinking was a big deal for this reason. The New Testament church was made up of primarily two groups. You were either a convert from Judaism or you were a convert from some other pagan worship. The irreligious, the, the I have no religious affiliation was completely unknown in the first century. So you had some world religion. So either you worshipped a monotheist, a one true God, Judaism, or you came from some other form of pagan worship, and likely that pagan worship involved sacrificing of bringing meat and food and drink to that, uh, that idol in worship. Now, Galatians deals with the Jewish issue. Do we still have to follow the Old Testament dietary laws now that we've converted to Christianity? And the whole book of Galatians tackles that subject to say, no, you're free. You're free from the Old Testament law. But in a similar way, the pagan believers in 1 Corinthians text help us to understand their context. Uh, it's a similar context to here in Romans. And Paul says, be careful that the exercise of your rights doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. There's three long chapters in Corinthians, and you say, well, what's Paul talking about? What rights are we, is he referring to about eating and drinking? And the context is this, that Corinth was filled with idolatry and idol worship, and those of you who have traveled in Hindu nations will know this reality even today. There's a Hindu temple on the hillside, and you will see people walking up the hillside and carrying with them food. It might be fruits and vegetables, it might be milk that they pour out on the altar, it might be a sacrifice of meat, and they take it, and you think about it from a Western point of view, and you go, what does this putting food in front of this, literally, it is an idol made out of stone or metal or brass or something, and they're literally putting human food in front of this inanimate object, like obviously that idol is not going to eat that food, and yes, it is very real in our world today. And it was same that's true in, in Corinth. So imagine now you're a new believer who's been converted out of that idol worship. You have been raised in that, in your background, and now you're a Christian and you're walking in the market and you see a quote-unquote mature Christian, an older believer from your church family, maybe somebody who's mentored you, somebody you look up to in the faith, and they're standing at the butcher counter and you know where that meat came from, some pagan temple sacrifice. And you know this because you yourself just a few days or weeks or months earlier had participated in that kind of worship, and now you want nothing to do with that old world. You want nothing to do with it. So imagine your confusion that this so-called mature believer is now standing there, and you go up to your brother or sister and like, you're not going to barbecue that, are you? 
And the answer could be, well, of course I am. Like, whatever. I'm free to eat whatever I want to eat. Of course I'm going to eat it. The context in Corinthians, those three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, it's not our focus, but it's instructive. The basic summary is this. As followers of Christ, we know that there's only one true God. The idols are not gods at all. So whatever ceremony that meat was involved in is pretty irrelevant to our walk. So go to the market and buy whatever you want to buy and don't even ask questions. God has given you freedom. Buy it, barbecue it, and give thanks to God. Enjoy it as his provision. However, the however comes. The but comes into the sentence. Not everyone has this freedom. Not everyone has the same knowledge or understanding or maturity. And so if a weaker brother is sitting at the table with you and they know where that meat comes from and they're offended, they're hindered in their spiritual journey, they're stumbling, then you as the stronger brother be willing to push away from the table, push that stake aside and say, I'm not going to participate in your presence. I remember well a heated debate, second year Bible school. Uh, It was back in the day when uh, very strict school, no secular music was supposedly allowed. So if you were going to play non-Christian music, you had to put your headphones on or play it very quietly in your dorm room. And so, like, I mean, it was like Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant were like as, you know, about as loud as it got. And then for some of us who liked a little more rock and roll type music, it was bands like Striper and Petra and Whiteheart. Anybody remember those? A few of you. Yeah, some good music. And it was rocking down the hallway. So second year, this guy shows up in our hallway. He was older. We were all like 18, 19. He was in his late 20s. He was muscular. He was tatted up with sleeves. And he looked like a guy who would not want to meet him in the alleyway. And we heard the story of how he literally had been radically converted to Christ just a few months earlier. And he had come out of the classic story of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And as he comes into this dorm room and he's hearing this music down the hallways, so second week in, we're having a hall meeting and the RD is going, guys, you got to turn down your rock music. And you can imagine the, uh, the anger that the other students are like, what do you mean we're going to turn down our music? It's Christian music. And he's like, yeah, the Christian is not the point. It's the rock music is triggering this guy and taking him back into the world he just came out of. So for the sake of your brother, please turn down your music. Would we willingly give up a right for a brother? You're free. However, you are indeed your brother's keeper. You are indeed your sister's keeper. And so Paul says, may there be nothing in my walk, my pursuit of freedom, that would cause a younger believer to stumble. So we're going to scan through this text really quickly. Going to take a run through if you're following in your Bibles, just really walking through point by point quickly and then see if we can apply it. In verse 14, he says, I'm convinced before the Lord that I'm free. But what I think is clean or approved or allowed might be unclean for somebody else. And for them, it is unclean because their conscience tells them it's unclean. And so, verse 15, if my action grieves my brother, if they're distressed by my actions, then I'm not acting in a loving way toward them. So verse 16, don't let what you say is good, quote unquote, as far as you're concerned, be spoken of as evil. Why? Verse 17 and 18. Because the kingdom of God is bigger than these kind of things. There's, There's bigger fish to fry. There are bigger issues, and they are the issues of righteousness and peace and joy. And so if you serve Christ in that way, you will be pleasing to God and also to your brother. Verse 19 and 21. 
Let's pursue peace. And so if there's something in my life that I need to give up for this person, I will willingly give it up. You know what? We do this so often when we go to other cultures. And those of you who have traveled internationally know that you will gladly accommodate your life to fit into the culture that you're in. I remember it's probably about 15 years ago. We were part of a a mission trip that spent three weeks in the, the north end of India. And we were told in advance of going about 20 of us on the team, men and women alike, even though it was swelteringly hot in India at that time, that the region of India that we were going into, there would be no bare legs, men or women. So it's hot, but you're not going to wear any shorts. Men, no shorts. And women, your legs cannot be seen because in this particular part of India, the women do not show their legs. So you wear pants all the time. And if you want to wear a skirt, that's fine, but make sure that skirt goes right to the ground, covers you right down to the ankles. Interestingly, when we got there, the women in that area, their legs were totally covered and many of them had a bare midriff. And we talked about it and we thought, you know what, in our culture, in the West, the bare midriff is looked at as being kind of risque and yet their legs were covered. And here's my point, not once on that time did I hear one of our team members complain. It was hot and surely we would have been more comfortable in wearing our shorts, but never once did they complain because for the culture, we did not want to put a stumbling block in the way of these people. We gladly wore our pants while we were there. And Paul's saying, be willing to give up your rights. And this principle in verse 22 and 23, it's a principle of maturity, he says. On these issues, make sure that you're convinced before God. Study, pray, and seek wisdom, and listen to your gut. He raises an interesting thing. In essence, he says, if in doubt, don't. If you have concerns in your spirit, it's a disputable item. The the scriptures are not clear, and so you're you're studying, and you've got questions. If you've got doubts about it, then, then don't. Just Step back until you've got a sure conscience on the issue. And then beginning at chapter 15, verse 1, he raises the bar a little higher for those who consider themselves the stronger brother. You think you're mature? You think you've grown deep in the things of God? That's awesome. You identify as a stronger brother? That's wonderful because now you get to take the lead role in being the greater servant in this relationship. As the one who's strong, you are willingly going to come under those who are weak for their good. Just like Jesus didn't grasp at his own rights, but took the form of a servant. So, part two of the same message. Same song, second verse. Accept one another, worship your way, stay in your lane, and then don't be a roadblock, but imitate Jesus, who was a servant. Why? Why? Because the five chapters that we're studying, chapters 12 through 16, their response to the first 11 doctrinal chapters, Paul drills this deep theological well for 11 long chapters. And then beginning at chapter 12 through the end of the book, he goes, now, how do you live out this doctrine in practical day life? And the Christian life is a life of love. It's a life of love toward God and a life of love toward one another, and it is a life of love to an outside watching world. And so it seems really straightforward, and you're like, Paul, why take a chapter and a half to drill into what seems like a simple issue? And to the Corinthian church, why would you take three full chapters? It must have been a big deal. And in Corinth, he raises the issue this way, that a believer might respond. You might have a tendency to say this as a believer. I have the right to do anything, thank you very much. As a believer, you could say that. I'm free in Christ, Galatians says it. 
You're free, 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 great. I can do whatever I want. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you might say, but not everything is constructive. So you ask some practical questions. You're like, am I free to skip church once in a while? There was an old legalistic day. If you missed church, like that was a big deal. Are you free to skip church? Of course you're free to skip church once in a while. But wisdom would tell you, I need to be with God's people. I need to gather. I need to know in the day and age that we're living in with all the chaos in the world around us that I'm not the only one who believes in Jesus. I need to gather with a room full of people where they are lifting up their praise. And you know what? The Lord has been so good to me that I want to be in the house of God and I want to lift up my hands and worship and go, God, you have been so good to me. I want to celebrate with God's people to remind myself of how awesome you are. And another week, I might be struggling so much in my faith that I'm like, Jesus, I don't know if I'm going to make it into the week. And I need to get to the gathering of God's people because, frankly, what I need to do is just sit there and listen to everybody else praise Jesus. Because I need to be encouraged by my brothers and sisters that I'm not alone in this and they're actually praising God and it lifts my spirit. And so could I skip church once in a while? Of course I can skip church, but I don't as much as possible because I desperately need to be with God's people. You see, that's the wisdom principle. Uh, many of these that uh, Jeff talked about last week, you know, can I, I'm going hunting, can I take a case of beer with me? Well, what does your conscience tell you? But, you know, if you do that, make sure you follow the Mennonite rule. Because if you actually want to drink that beer, you should take two Mennonites with you. Because they won't drink any of it if there's two of them. If you only take one, he'll drink all your beer. <laughs> Women does dressing modestly involve wearing makeup and jewelry and doing your nails and all that? Because there's some traditions that would say no, it doesn't. Men, should you cut your hair like a good respectable citizen? Or should you wear your hair like Jesus did? Longer. Does it matter today whether you're cheering for the bombers or the Thai cats as the Thai cats destroy the bombers? Does it matter who you cheer for? Do you have the freedom to listen to country music? Of course not. Now, we have crossed the line. <laughs> the scriptures are clear. There are types of music that definitely believers should not listen to. So, Paul, you get the ideas. Paul makes his argument clear. We have freedom in Christ to this degree. Number one, if you are persuaded from the scriptures and from wisdom that you have freedom, then you are free. If you are persuaded, so don't just make up any willy-nilly excuse for what you want to do. Are you persuaded from the scriptures and by the spirit of God and the principles of wisdom, then you're free. However, are you willing and humble enough to hold those beliefs loosely? to guard your freedom closely, very aware of others around you, and if anything in your life might cause a weaker one to stumble, you will gladly give it up. So study the word, talk to your friends, look at the principles, form your convictions, and stand your ground. Now, the stronger might be tempted to be impatient. Verse 3 referred to that, chapter 14. Might want to look down on that weaker brother, treat them with contempt, sniff and disdain. Come on, you weak person. Why don't you just grow up? Get with the program. Don't you know these things? How could you be confused about something so simple? And then, frankly, is they don't know. That's why we call them baby Christians. They haven't yet been taught. They might even know the, st the stories of the Scripture, let alone how to apply them to their life. They've not studied. They, they may have formed some opinions that are right or wrong, accurate or not accurate. They're immature. They are babies in the faith. And so your little toddler who's still sitting in a high chair being fed, you don't expect the, uh, the uh, behavior of your teenager. 
And if your teenager is still sitting in the high chair, you know that there is a problem here. So bear with them, those who are weaker brothers and sisters. Come alongside that idea. Welcome them. Pull them in. You pull them in because you are concerned for them, just like Jesus emptied himself. And why does this matter? Every time you study the scriptures, you should ask yourself the question, so what? So what? Why does it matter to us today? Why is it important? Does this text have anything to say to you and me, the average Christian today? Because Christians have experienced this. Some of you can tell the stories of having been judged or rejected or criticized by other people. If I ask you to raise your hands, how many of you know somebody who is no longer attending church because they've been judged or criticized or offended in the church? All of us know those kind of people who have just simply walked away. I'm sick of that kind of judgmental attitude. But as I reflected on the bigger picture, I think there's something more here. And where the Spirit of God took me was this, the bigger underlying assumption, way down deep underneath this, and the assumption of the entire Bible from cover to cover really is this. It is that God actually wants you to be strong. That this is an underlying current from cover to cover of the Bible. He doesn't want any of us to be weak. He wants you to be strong in faith. He has good plans for your life. He wants you to grow strong and mature. He wants you to flourish. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. It's not about being puffed up and proud and going, look at me, I'm a mature believer, and if you want to see a specimen of the faith, just look at Like, that's revolting to everybody. And it's not about the weak God being able to use weak people, because there are so many passages where it says God delights in using the weak to shame the wise. He puts the glorious message of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4 says, in clay pots, uh, ordinary peanut butter jars, if you will. The glorious message, he puts it in people like, like, look around you, people like the people around you, ordinary people. God delights to show his power through frail people, but that's not this context. This context is weakness of maturity and strength, and the call of the New Testament is for us to grow up in Christ. So 1 Peter 2, like newborn babies... You've come to faith in Jesus, you're a baby, crave pure spiritual milk that you might grow up into your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Colossians 2 says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. So you're a baby Christian, that's awesome. Now get your roots down deep into God's word and into the fellowship of the believers and, and start to grow to maturity. Hebrews 5, there's a bit of a rebuke for others on the other end. It says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're no longer trying to understand. In fact, by now, you ought to be teachers. You've been a Christian long enough, you should be sharing your faith with others, and instead, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And in that case, it's a rebuke saying, you should have grown up long ago. You see, God wants us to be strong, and I need to remind you of this greater picture because God wants to use your life to bring glory to himself. And the bigger picture of the scripture that you might have forgotten about, or maybe you actually never heard it, is this. Every man and woman and boy and girl in this room, every individual in this room, were made for God's glory and for his good pleasure. Every single one of you, you were made for his use, for his service, for his purposes. We are not here as a cosmic accident of some big bang and the evolutionary process that just by accident there happen to be human beings. The scripture tells us, no, the human being above all else in creation is uniquely stamped with the very DNA of God, male and female made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, the purposes of God. And yes... Human nature can be deeply marred by sin, 
by rebellion. We can be captured in our own addictions. We can be victims of abuse and be abusers ourselves. We can rebel, but at the root of every human that you meet, regardless of how marred they are by sin, deep in the core is the DNA of God stamped on the image that wants to come out to the glory of God. And it is true of every boy and girl and every man and woman that are hearing this message. You have been made to reflect the glory, his image, his good purposes, and he wants you to enjoy his blessing. He wants you to experience deep peace of knowing he's in control. He wants you to have supernatural strength to weather the storms of life. He wants you to have a steadfast knowledge that there's more to life than what we see and hear and taste and touch on the physical plane, that there's more to life than the temporary here and now. You were made for eternity. And that when the storms of life blow, and the storms will blow in everybody's life, an unexpected trial, a grief, or a sorrow, there's an anchor point for you. You face these trials because you know that they're temporary. They're temporary. You're going to get through them. And what remains eternal is God's love, the love of the Father for his kids and his good purposes. And he tells, listen to these things that the Lord says about you. You are my prized possession. You are a chosen people. Once you weren't a people, but now you're called the people of God. You're a royal priesthood. You were adopted into the family of the king. You are now sons and daughters of the high king. You are heirs of his kingdom. He's given you the keys to the kingdom. You have authority and dominion over the powers of darkness. You are sent on a mission to love and care and show mercy and grace to a watching world. He has set his delight on you. He smiles when he thinks of you. But there is an equal and an opposite truth that the Bible tells us is, is very, very true. That there is an enemy of our souls that does not want you to believe a word of what I just said. There is an enemy who does not want you to live in the power that God has created you to live in. He will do all in his power to blind your eyes, to stop up your ears, to harden your heart to confuse your thoughts. He will do whatever he can, anything and everything at his disposal to keep you from stepping into the strength of who God is calling you to be. There is an enemy who does not want you to be useful to the high king. And if he can keep you locked away in sin and deadness of life and that you don't believe better yet, but if you do come to faith, then the very best thing that he can do is to keep you a baby Christian the rest of your physical life. And there is nothing that would delight the enemy more than that you never grow up. It would delight him that you would spend the rest of your life, and you might even be proudly thumbing your, you know, your, your nose sort of at the church and going, I don't have to live like that. And you know what? The enemy is delighted that you just stay an infant the rest of your life. It's why the Old and New Testament give us so many calls. There are dozens and dozens of these calls to strength. I'll just share nine of them. There's probably over 100. I pulled up 20 of them, and I chose 12. Joshua was being commissioned to service by Moses. And what does Moses say to him? Be strong. Be strong and courageous. You've got to lead these people into the promised land. Step up, man. Be strong. First Kings 2, David is saying the same thing to his son Solomon. I'm going to die. You're going to build the temple. You're going to lead these people. Solomon, show yourself a man. Step up. Job 38, an interesting conversation with God and Job. Job's been whining for 30-some-odd chapters, and now finally God gives a response. The first thing God says to Job is like, get ready for it. Dress for action like a man, because I'm going to talk to you. And I, oh my goodness, I'm thinking Job wets his pants right at that moment in time. 
I'm going to talk to the Almighty and the Almighty is going to talk back to me. Proverbs 31, we meet this incredibly strong woman. She is strong like a Russian woman. Strong like tractor. This woman stays up late. She gets up early. She's buying and selling. She's sewing clothes for her family. She's cooking great meals. She's developing real estate. Her husband has not a bad word to say about her. When he goes to meet with the elders at the city gate, all he can think of is praise for this incredibly strong woman that God has put in his life. Esther, this young timid woman, is given a place of power. And her uncle Mordecai says, you're in this position. Step up, sister. Step up and you've got to be courageous. You've got to speak because God has placed you here. Isaiah 40 says even millennials grow tired and weary. And even Gen Z will will lose their strength, but those who wait on the Lord will renew it. Ephesians 6 says be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the enemy's onslaught. And once you put on that full armor, then stand strong in the Lord. 1 John 2, 4. I write to you, young men, because you're strong. There's so many passages, and Paul gives this challenge to those who are strong in their faith. Now pay special attention and give deference and grace and care to those who are weak. Don't leave them out there weak. Pull them in, not to acquiesce to their spiritual immaturity, their self-centered ways, not to accommodate rebellion or their ego or their selfish ambition, but to come alongside like iron sharpening iron and saying, can we speak into these issues in one another's life? God has something better for you. In every audience, there are those who feel weak. And in every audience, there are those who are walking alongside those who are currently feeling weak. There are those who face doubt and fears and struggles, and you need to know that God is for you, and that even your growth into maturity is a gift of his grace. There was a phrase of Jesus' life taken from Isaiah that came to my mind this week. It was said of Jesus, the bruised reed he will never break, and the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It's a quote from Isaiah. And in essence, what it says is when you're down, Jesus doesn't kick you. When you're down, you feel like you're a bruised reed, you're just a smoldering candle that's just about to blow out. The Lord doesn't come along and smack you. He comes along and encourages you. He says, come to me. And as I was thinking of this old, old hymn from, it's 300 years old, written in 1759. It was written as the Great Awakenings were sweeping the eastern seaboard up the uh, the American seaboard on the east coast. And some guy puts pen and paper to write a 300-year-old hymn. We've updated it and put a new tune to it in our day. But it reads like this. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able. He is able. He is able. Doubt no more. Come, ye weary, heavy laden, bruised, mangled by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, that's a a thought to stop and think about. Because so many people are like, I can't come to Jesus yet. i got to get some things right in my life. i got to fix some stuff first. That is not the gospel. The gospel says you come right now with all the crap just like it is. You bring it to Jesus just as you are. Don't wait till you get your life better. Because if you wait until you're better, you'll probably never come at all. I don't know who you are. I don't know, I don't need to know who you are. But I know you're here. In a room this size, I know there are people who are going, I'm not sure I'm going to hang on to my faith one more week. 
Some of you here are like, I'm not sure I believe this Christian thing. I'm skeptical of it. And you're hurting. You need to know that Jesus says to you, a bruised reed and a smoldering wick I won't snuff out. If you're here in that condition, I challenge you, cry out to Jesus. He wants to meet you where you are. And some of you are walking with your friends, a spouse, a child, a friend who is in this situation, and you need to go before the throne of grace and say, oh, God, have mercy. Oh, God, please, please have mercy on my friend. Please, Jesus, draw them to yourself. Show yourself real. Be compassionate to them, Jesus, because they desperately need you. We're going to stand together. I want to pray for both those groups, and then we'll sing together as we close. But let's stand, and I'll pray for you. Jesus, you know the men and women in this room today that need a special touch from your spirit. And in a mysterious way, you somehow are able to do that. You're able to take the words of Scripture, just black and white, ink and paper, and these words come alive to us. And so, Lord, you know the person who walked through the doors today who needed a word from you who needed a word of encouragement, they're feeling weak, they have doubts, they're anxious, they're fearful, and they need to have the strength to face one more week of this spiritual journey. And so, Lord, I pray even in this moment, right now, would you overwhelm them with your love and with your presence. May they know that you are there for them, that you have them. And then, Lord, I pray for others in this room who are walking alongside some of these people, who have a friend or family member that they would just desperately love to fix all the problems and somehow they can't and all they can do is stand helplessly and cry out to you, oh God, have mercy. Oh God, have mercy on my spouse, on my child, on my friend, on my coworker. They need a touch from you, God. And may we hear the stories even in the weeks ahead of how people have met with you and how they have come and they have found healing at your feet. And so we commit these people to you in Jesus' name. Amen.